right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Worship at Grace today. You know, when you think about it, if we really believe that God exists, and we really believe that he is a gracious and benevolent God who warns, who uh, rewards those who, who seek him, then naturally we would want to pray to God. And we should want to pray even more and be more eager because Jesus, our Lord, has invited us to do that. In fact, he said in Matthew's gospel, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. So uh, if you don't pray on a regular basis, it's probably an indication either you don't believe God exists, or perhaps you don't really believe that he's a God of his word. Prayer is just a natural expression of reaching out to God when we truly believe in him and are truly following. Now, in today's message, I want to encourage you, wherever you are on the journey, whether you've been following the Lord for decades or maybe you're brand new to this journey of faith, I want this message to be an encouragement to grow in our prayer life, but specifically in the area of intercession. We've been studying this man Abraham in the Old Testament, and what we found is that, like most of us, he's a bundle of strengths and weaknesses, right? He's got a lot to commend him, but he also has a lot of flaws and blind spots, like we all do. But what we're going to see today is that one of the areas where Abraham apparently was quite strong was in the area of prayer. So if you have a Bible of your own or however you read Scripture, you can open there to Genesis 18 and just leave it open because we're going to look at a lot of Scripture today. In fact, uh, I'm going to be reading so many verses. This story just kind of tells itself really, and I'm going to add a a minimum amount of, of commentary to it. But I want us to walk through chapters 18 and 19 as we learn some incredible lessons about how to grow in a life of prayer. The first thing I want you to see is that effective prayer begins with a friendship with God. Abraham had now been walking with God for 24, 25 years. So my point is God was not just the man upstairs. He was not just a higher power, but sort of generic. He was not some impersonal force, as we say, may the force be with you. No, Abraham had grown to have a genuine friendship with God. We read in the book of James chapter 2, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, catch this part, And he was called God's friend. You see, Abraham had a genuine friendship with the Lord. The first question we need to ask is, how's our friendship with the Lord going? Is that healthy? Is it natural? And do we have a a communication with God, prayer, that just kind of naturally flows out of that? Let's pick this story up in chapter 18. 
the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Now, Abraham knew the Lord well enough by this point to know that these were no ordinary visitors. Two of them apparently were angels, and one of them, I take it, was the Lord himself. In other words, this was kind of a pre-incarnate visitation of the Lord in the Old Testament era. And so Abraham bowed before them, and in verse 3, he said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. And so then he says, Let me wash your feet. Customary thing to do when people had been traveling. Feet were dirty and tired, and so it was a, a hospitable thing. Let me prepare a meal for you. And he's really happy to have them. He says, why don't you stay a while? And they agreed, and Abraham brought the meal and sat it before them. Look down at verse 8. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. So I want you to see here that Abraham welcomed these supernatural visitors. Unlike many modern Christians who seem to want to keep God at an arm's distance lest he challenge them too much and and nudge them out of their comfort zone so they try to keep him at a distance. But no, Abraham was anxious to get nearer to the Lord and to be more intimate. I like Jeremiah 29, verse 13. It says, you will seek me and find me when you seek for me with all of your heart. And the picture we get so far of Abraham is that in spite of his many flaws, Abraham was a genuine seeker after God. Yes, he was a believer, but he was seeking to grow deeper and deeper in that walk. Verse 10, then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now let's pause. You see, for roughly 25 years now, God has been making this prediction, but check this. This is the first time he puts a date on it. This is the first time in this promise of a son that he gets specific. And he says, next year, by this time, you'll have a son. Let's read on. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years. By the way, she was 89 at this point, and Abraham was 99 years old. So that's a pretty good description. They were old and advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? See, Sarah laughed because she really didn't believe this was going to happen, and we know she didn't believe it. Because if an 89-year-old woman, here she's pregnant, she's not going to laugh. She's going to cry, okay? So we know she really didn't believe this. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? 
and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? I love this next line, by the way. I would hope that this first part of verse 14 here in Genesis 18, that all of us would kind of memorize and let it sink deep in our soul. Notice what he asks, is anything too hard for the Lord? Isn't that a great question? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. Verse 16, when the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. It's pretty clear that Abraham obviously doesn't want them to go. I mean, he's enjoying this. He's enjoying the fellowship with the supernatural. And as they're walking along, it's interesting, just conversing, the Lord says, well, maybe Abraham ought to tell you what I'm about to do in the cities on the plain, in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. You see, the outcry against them is grievous because of their sin. Now, that revelation, what the Lord shared with Abraham, became the basis for this intercession that we're about to read. And so this kind of bubbled up within Abraham because of this close relationship with God that he had. Rosalind Rinker wrote, prayer is a conversation between two people who love each other. And I think that's a pretty pithy description. It's a conversation. But it begins with this relationship. It just kind of flows naturally out of it. Proverbs 15 reads, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. Now, please listen closely. God may hear the emergency prayer from a total stranger, someone who wants nothing to do with him. But God wants more than just an occasional crisis kind of conversation. When it comes to our prayer life, God wants a daily fellowship with him, a friendship. And it's just the conversation that flows out of that naturally. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, verse 14? You are my friends if you do what I command. So one of the ways that we know we're developing a friendship with God is are we really obeying what he's told us? Are we walking in obedience to him? Are we in his word on a regular basis and growing in our understanding and the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And are we having some sort of quiet time? I would, I would urge you, I would highly recommend that daily you get alone with God. If it has to be a very short time, that's, that's fine, but I would urge you to daily carve out some kind of experience with the Lord where it's just you and the Lord together, as it were, face to face, and you're cultivating that friendship with God. Now think about this for a moment. You can read all kinds of book on, books on music and music theory and never be able to play the piano. It's true, isn't it? You might know all about it, but never be able to play the piano. 
And you could pick up all kinds of books on golf and learn all about the game of golf and how it goes and how it's played and the proper techniques, but you're never going to learn the game of golf until you get out there and start swinging a club. And I want to say this to you, dear friends, you can read all kinds of books on prayer, you can hear all kinds of sermons on prayer, but you don't learn to pray until you pray, until you actually begin to talk to God and listen in that conversation. Now, I have regular practices of prayer. I'm sure that comforts you greatly. You would expect a pastor to do that, right? But I have cultivated through the decades a regular practice of praying each day. But I'm just being candid here with you. I try to always do that. Many times I feel like I'm about a fourth or fifth grader in the school of prayer. And I sense that some of you may be in graduate school, and I've got a whole lot that I can learn from you. But I want you to hear this part carefully. The fact that I know I'm praying to an intimate Savior who cares about every aspect of my life, rather than just an impersonal force out there, makes all the difference to me. In fact, I could not bear the pressures and the responsibilities of a ministry like this without that daily reinforcement. And I'll bet that many of you are like that because you know what pressure's about, don't you? You know what it's like to be under the gun every day and whatever your vocation or walk of life may be. So before we leave this and move to the next point, I want you to see some scriptures that have become incredibly important to me. They're in Philippians chapter 4, and I, I hope you're familiar with them, but if not, it's time. It's time that you discover these and begin to drink deeply from this well. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, by the way, in American society, the number one issue where people are medicated, okay, is for anxiety-related issues. Any medical doctor, any psychiatrist will confirm this Anxiety is rampant in our culture, and it takes numerous forms, but it's all based in this angst, this fear, this nervous anxiety about the present and the future, and sometimes these fears are fueled from things from the past. So God says, look, I, I got an antidote here for you. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving... And by the way, this is just full of great psychology. It has been discovered through literal experimental testing over and over again that when people keep Thanksgiving journals, for instance, it's amazing how it helps dispel their anxieties as they just focus in on intentionally on what they're thankful for. So there's just great psychology here. Present your requests to God. Now notice this promise God gives as we do that. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, brothers and sisters, I wear these verses out. There's too much pressure. There, there's too many situations in life that would just be crushing 
if I were not daily and often many times a day coming to God with these anxieties, with these concerns, and I've discovered the amazing peace of God that just watches over my heart and soul in Christ Jesus. And I urge you to do the same. It's all a part of developing that friendship with God. Second thing I want you to see here in this story is that effective prayer emphasizes intercession for others. Kind of interesting. When the Lord told Abraham what was going to happen with Sodom, Abraham was immediately concerned. I contrast that with the response of the prophet Jonah when he heard God was going to destroy the city of Nineveh. Remember what he did? He ran in the opposite direction. He had no concern at all for the Ninevites, but here Abraham is greatly concerned. He cares for the people of Sodom, and probably particularly because his nephew Lot and his family live there as well. Verse 23, then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? And so the Lord agreed, if there's 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city, I'll not destroy it. And Abraham began to think, wow, whew, that may be too high. Uh, let's see if I can bring God down here a little bit. Verse 27, then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I'm nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Now, from this point on, Abraham becomes like an auctioneer in reverse. What if there's 40? Oh, I'll spare the city for... Oh, what if there's only 30, Lord? Don't be upset with me for asking, but oh, okay, I'll, I'll preserve the city if there's even 30 there. Oh, well, Lord, Lord, one more. What about 20? And so he just is kind of an auctioneer in reverse. By the way, people often say, the God of the Old Testament is mean and wrath-filled, but the God of the New Testament is just loving and gracious. Same God. And here's one of many examples of God's mercy and grace in the Old Testament and his patience. Verse 32. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And I think Abraham dared not ask for a lower number because he figured, well, at least Lot and his family are there. Surely, surely there's at least 10 righteous people there. Verse 33, when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. What a beautiful illustration of intercession. And in our lives, often when we've prayed for someone, possibly our children or someone else, sometimes we still don't know what the outcome's gonna be, but we just have to kind of take it to God and leave it there with the Lord. Intercession is praying to the Lord on behalf of other people instead of always just praying for yourself. Now, let me ask you, do you do that? Do you practice that? 
As I read scripture, it seems to me that intercession is a really big deal in the Bible. Jesus interceded, it seems, in the Garden of Gethsemane for his disciples and those who would follow in the future, that they would be unified and that they would be courageous. We read in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 34, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. By the way, a parallel passage to this, Hebrews 7.25, says that Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. You see, he's our high priest, and he always is interceding for us. But we read in verse 26 of this same chapter that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Catch this, in the same way, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. In the book of Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about intercession. Look at what he says here. God whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his Son is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers At all times. And in other letters he wrote, he talked about his continuing intercession for the people in the church. We read in the book of Acts chapter 12 that when Peter was in prison, the apostle Peter, the church was interceding for people. And it's an exciting story there about how God responded to their intercession. And Peter was actually released miraculously. We are taught in the book of James, chapter 5, that we should pray for one another. Look at this. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. There's nothing wrong with praying for yourself. Nothing wrong at all. We need all the prayer we can get. But I think it's a general sign of maturity when we get off of ourselves and begin to focus more on the needs of others so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is is powerful and effective. And then we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that that we're to be making intercession for all people. Look at what this says. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Let me say it again. Intercession is a big deal in the Bible. It's just talked about over and over again. And it's a part of a healthy Christian life, friendship with God. There's a cool story in Exodus chapter 17. You may want to read this week. Moses is up on a hill overlooking the battle, and the Israelites are battling the Amalekites. It's a powerful picture of intercession, and Moses has his hands raised in intercessory prayer, and as long as his hands are raised in prayer, the Israelites are prevailing, but when his hands go down, then the enemy pushes back and begins to take advantage. And so two assistants, Aaron and a man named Hur, H-U-R, come alongside of Moses and Each one grabs one of his arms and they keep his arms extended in prayer 
and the Israelites win the day. What a powerful picture of intercession that is. So let me ask you again, is that a part of your prayer life? You say, well, pastor, I want it to be, but, but I, I don't know how to start. I don't know what that should look like. Well, quickly look at four ingredients here of Abraham's intercession that I think helped make it effective. First of all, it was reverent. You may want to write some of these words down. In other words, it came humbly. He came, look, Lord, I know I'm just dust and ashes. Remember that line? He was very humble as he approached God. Second, it was specific. He wasn't afraid to ask God for specific numbers and say, Lord, please spare the city. Now, I guess it's okay to pray real generic prayers. Bless America. Bless the church. God bless the missionaries. Lord, would you bless my family? But what does that even mean? I mean, how do you honestly know if that prayer even gets answered? Prayer is dynamic when it is specific. Don't just pray for a bike. Pray for an orange bike with purple polka dots. You'll never forget that, will you? Specific is dynamic. Please get that principle. Third, it was persistent. Notice how persistent Abraham was in his intercession. He kept coming back. What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? When Jesus said, ask and you will receive, seek and you will find, knock and it will, the door will be open to you, in the Greek text, those verbs, ask, seek, and knock, are in the present active. That means he's talking about continuous action. The tense and the voice of those Greek verbs is present active. Keep on seeking would be an accurate translation. Keep on asking. Keep on knocking. So be persistent. And finally, it was bold. You might even say his request of God were almost brazen. He was asking God to literally alter his plans. We've got to remember when we intercede, we're praying to a God who can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. Now, if somebody comes to you and asks for something really great, really big, really awesome of you, it probably is not an insult to you. It's probably a compliment. You go, wow, they think I could do that? And when we ask big things of God, God is not insulted as long as we're praying in his will. One of the reasons that I continue to be so excited about where we're going as a church and particularly this 2020 vision campaign and all the changes that are coming that are going to make us more effective in reaching our community for Christ, this is not some fundraising thing. This is a discipleship journey. I hope we understand that. You see, we tend to become what we're committed to. You can take that one home with you, by the way. We tend to become what, like what we're committed to. And when we're committed to the purposes of God, to making more and better disciples, we are going to grow in that very maturity. We are going to become more like Christ. 
we're going to take on more of his character. I'm excited about all that God is doing. A poet wrote, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his strength and power are such thou canst never ask for too much. Some of our prayers are a little puny. We need to be bolder in our praying. Well, third and finally, I want you to see that effective prayer produces positive results. Abraham prayed, but the city of Sodom was not spared. Now, stick with me here. I know that sounds contradictory, but stick with me and see what I'm talking about. The two angels who went to the city, Lot insisted they spend the night with him there in his home because out in the city square where strangers often stayed, when they didn't have a place to stay, it was kind of a dangerous place. So look at chapter 19, starting in verse 4. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Now, one of the issues in Sodom was a rampant practice of homosexuality. But in this particular case, the men who surrounded this house were apparently determined to rape and violate these angelic guests. So Lot tries to reason with them, move on down to verse 9. Get out of our way, they replied, and they said, this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But then these angels take action. Look at verse 10. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. And we read in verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. But the next morning, God indeed destroyed the city. We read in verse 24, Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Scholars have wondered for centuries, what exactly was that like? Was it a spontaneous volcanic eruption that just in a couple of minutes just covered the city in molten lava? Was that what it was like? Was it just these fiery lava rocks glowing that fell down on the city? Or was it something that had never been experienced before on the earth? We don't know for sure, but it was total destruction. So Abraham's prayer did not spare the cities 
of Sodom and Gomorrah, but his prayer did spare the lives of Lot and most of his family members. And we read in verse 15, with the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife. Notice the urgency in this plea all throughout here. Hurry, hurry, they're saying. Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. Now, I know that in the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2, it calls Lot righteous, okay? I know that. And Lot was indeed a follower of the Lord, and he was a believer, as was his uncle Abraham. But when you read Lot's story, Lot had tons of flaws. He wasn't really all that super righteous when you get down to it. And when you read on here, you see that his daughters weren't really all that righteous either. And when you read on, you see that Lot's wife wasn't really all that righteous. She was told, don't look back, but she was so enamored with what was going on in the city of Sodom that she lingered behind. She looked back and turned into a pillar of salt. <laughs> One little kid in kids' celebration, the children's ministry, it heard this story and uh, about Lot's wife turning into a pillar of salt, and he said, last week, my mom looked back and turned into a telephone pole. <laughs> Lot and his family were far from perfect. They weren't spared because they were good. They were spared because of the intercessory prayer of Abraham to a merciful God. And finally, we read in verse 29, so when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Intercessory prayer can have powerful results. George Mueller is known in history as a man of prayer. This man who lived in the UK who ran a number of orphanages, who did tremendous ministry. He kept a prayer journal. It's a pretty well-known fact about his life. And he would pray for people to be saved, among other things, and all kinds of other things he would pray about. But he would pray for people to be saved. And after his death, a couple of friends went through George Mueller's prayer journals. And they noticed that there was a couple of men in there that he had prayed for every single day for five years, interceded for them to be saved. And after five years, they were saved. They also noticed another man in the journal there that Mueller had prayed for almost every day for 20 years until he was finally saved. And then they noticed that there were two men whose names kept appearing in this prayer journal for 40 years, Mueller prayed that these two men that he cared about would be saved. And when Mueller died, they still were not saved. But guess what? Two years after Mueller's death, both of these men came to faith in Christ and became solid followers of Jesus. You know what I've observed? Most people who follow the Lord Jesus Christ have been prayed for by name. 
and usually for quite a while. The secret is no secret anymore. God moves in response to prayer. So let me ask you, is there anybody that you are praying for on a regular basis? That they would come to know the Lord or that they would grow deeper in their walk with Christ. I'm going to give you a challenge today as we close because Paul says in Romans 15, verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Paul was not ashamed to ask for people to intercede for him. And so I want to I give you an assignment, if you will. Sermons always need to have a takeaway. Here's an action point. I wonder if you would be willing to adopt a staff person and just kind of pray for them on a daily basis. A daily basis. It could be lead pastor at one of our congregations. It could be a staff person in any department of ministry. But pick a person and say, Lord, I'm going to be faithful to bring this person before you. Pray for their integrity. Pray for their character. Pray for them to remain morally pure and not stumble and fall. Pray for them to be filled with the Holy Spirit daily and for their ministry to be effective. And quite frankly, if it's not too much, I would ask you to pray for me. I really would, because I believe that Satan is a strategist. And I, I heard a testimony. I don't have time to go into the details. It would freak you out, many of you, if you did hear the details. But I, I heard from a fellow pastor in the area who was working in a deliverance moment, exercising some spirits out of someone who had been involved in a, in, in a really, really satanic situation. And it came out in this, these hours of deliverance prayer that, you know, Satan really does have a strategy, and his strategy is to take down leaders in the capital district. Now, I know that may sound spectacular to you and overly dramatic, but it's just rational, really. There's no gentleman's agreement that we will only shoot privates in this war. <laughs> oh, no. Satan is going to go for the generals, so if it's not too much, I would ask you to pray for me as well. All those same things I ask you to pray for the staff. And pray for other leaders in the church that you know. Because here's what I've concluded. I believe prayer is a powerful thing. I am more encouraged in my intercessions these days than I've ever been. And here's why. Because I've been praying now long enough that I've seen results. And that's encouraging. I pray for marriages in the church. And I have seen marriages that were on the rocks be healed and put back together. I pray for people who are sick and disabled and battling disease. And I have seen through the years people literally be healed to get through that season of disease or conflict, that infirmity, and go on living months or even years beyond what any doctor predicted. And I pray for leaders, I pray for people of influence in the church because they carry that glorious burden of responsibility and I pray that they will be strong. And boy, I have seen results. But I've got to tell you the flip side. 
I've also prayed for marriages to be healed, and they ended up in divorce. I also prayed for sick people in a hospital bed to be healed, and they ended up dying. And I've prayed for leaders to be strong and courageous and have integrity, and they've ended up going over the deep end morally. I don't know why sometimes the prayer is answered in the affirmative and sometimes not. Anytime you've got a human element involved, that obviously answers part of that. Because God usually is not going to violate, in fact, I'll say he just will not violate our own free will. So whenever a person has free will in a situation, God's going to honor their free will. But I've seen enough glorious answers to intercession that I'm more convinced than ever that his word is true when he says, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Lot owed his very life to the intercessory prayer of Abraham. Who are you praying for on a regular basis? Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Thank you for your love, and thank you for the invitation that we will seek you and find you when we seek you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.